Well, for our time in the Word, we're going to continue our study in that very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Where over the course of this year, we have simply been trying to walk through that very important first book of the Bible of how does the Bible begin the story of redemption? How does God's first book begin that pathway of unfolding of who God is? Who are we? And what does this all mean? Well, today we are going to be in Genesis 18. Genesis 18 is where we find ourselves So I would encourage you to have those scripture journals open if you have one. If you don't, there's plenty in the back. Or you can follow along with your own Bible or the black ESV Pew Bible. That's going to be on page 12 for using that black one. All right. Now, I don't normally do this, but I do want to speak directly to a few of the kiddos that we have in the room this morning. I know, Mia's heart just stopped. (laughs) My daughter. It can be tough to be a pastor's kid because you don't know what your dad's going to (laughs) say. Don't worry. But here's what I want you guys to hear this morning. Because I don't think I understood this when I was your guys' age. All right? So Sammy, Colston, Mia, others. I didn't understand that God was not just mighty and powerful, but that he was good. And I I want you guys to see this in the text today, that he is mighty and powerful and he's good. That even though he is all of those things, he's created all the things in which we see and we can look around and behold, but yet, even amongst that mightiness and that power, he cares about you, what's going on in your life. Okay, so keep that in mind this morning because there is nothing too hard for him. There's nothing too hard for him. Now, for all of us, I think that's, we need to know that, right? We need to know that there's nothing too hard for him. And I believe that we're going to see this in our text today. Now, in case uh, you have not had a, a chance to uh, meet my son, Levi, or see him outside of church What you would notice about him is that he loves to wear tank tops. He loves to wear tank tops. Okay? We call them muscle shirts in our house. You know, because sun's out, gun's out, right? Well, (laughs) but here's, here's why I want to tell you guys this. Because according to Levi, if you are wearing a muscle shirt, there's nothing you can't do. Okay? Somehow, that shirt imputes some kind of mightiness to you. Now, when I was reading Genesis 18 and just preparing for our time this morning, I believe in a theological sense, what I was reminded is, of, is that God himself is kind of always wearing a muscle shirt. And it's part of who he is. It's not something that he puts on and takes off. It's who he is. God does not become mighty in certain situations, but that he is mighty. We looked at this last week when God introduced himself as 
the Almighty. And I think that's what we're going to continue to see in Genesis 18. It's another reminder that no matter the circumstances of our lives, or the circumstances of the lives of God's people, he will constantly show himself to be the one who's in control. And that we can have complete trust in him, because not only is he mighty, but like I said, he's also what? Good. Good. And he is mighty to complete what he started. So if he is mighty and he is good, then we also see that God will draw near to us. And that we can draw near to him. Well, let me, let me stop there for now. What I want to do is I just want to pray one more time. I want to pray for you. And just for your receiving of the word of God today. And I ask that as I'm praying for you, will you pray for me? And then I'll read Genesis 18 for us. Well, Father, I want to just stop one more time and come before your throne. Knowing that it is your word. It is your gospel that is good news. And God, it is your word that teaches us who you are ultimately. This, this special, this unique revelation that, that highlights exactly who you are. So God, I pray for the men and women, the kids that are in the room this morning. I pray that you'd give them ears to hear, eyes to see who you are and why that matters for them right now, whether they're coming in longing to know more of you or maybe have never even considered it. But I, Father, I just pray Because the work in which we desire to see you do in the hearts of all of us can only come from you. I can't change anybody's heart, but you can. Father, I also want to pray for our kiddos and the teachers next door as they're looking at Genesis 18 and considering all of what even the littlest hearts and minds should believe and receive today. God, I pray that you'd give those teachers wisdom, you'd give those those kiddos the same uh, ability to respond to your goodness. And that we would all walk out of here today loving you, Jesus, more than when we first walked in. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right, hopefully you found your way to Genesis 18. And let me go ahead and just read through the first 21 verses this morning. Starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if you have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves, and after, after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. Verse 6, And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. All right, so in our text... What I want to do this morning is consider that scene in which we just read. Even though I think Genesis 18 composes two scenes, and initially I was going to try to cover both of them this Sunday, but I think we, I want to focus in on just this scene between God, Abraham, and Sarah. Whereas there's this, this visit, this conversation between the three of them, and I believe we will see a, a focus a focus of the, how God draws near to us. God draws near to us. Why? So that we could draw near to him. So God draws near to us so we can draw near to him. Now, we cannot begin chapter 18 with forgetting all of what has come before it. Right? Because it is a continuation of everything we've been learning about Abraham and his wife Sarah since Genesis 12 where God has called this man, who now has the name Abraham, to follow him, right? To leave everything that he knew, to follow him to a new land, to trust him. And if you recall, why did God choose Abraham? Well, we don't know. We just know that God chose him. In fact, if you look down at your Bibles, if you look at verse 16 of chapter 18, you'll see that God, once again, we see that he says, I have chosen him. And this was unconditional, right? This is what the Bible calls election, where God, in his own mercy, in his own sovereign understanding, has decided to reveal himself and his promises to individuals. And we thank God for that. That it's not, he's not waiting for us to get our lives together before he will reveal who he is. That he's not waiting for us to clean up our act but rather finds us exactly where we're at and says, I will be your God and you will be my people and you can trust me. And if you are a Christian today, a follower of Christ, in the same manner, you have been called by him to follow him. 
Not based off of who you are or what you have done, but based simply on who he is and what he has done. And it's a wonderful reminder for all of us that the call to follow Christ is one that started by grace, undeserved gift, and will be completed by grace. And so we continue to walk and follow him. But going back to Abraham and Sarah, we know that these promises that were given to them, right, known as the Abrahamic covenant, their trusting of these promises has been a kind of a wild ride, hasn't it? A lot of ups and downs. A lot of doubting from both of them going, God, did you get the right person? Are you sure you want me to know you? Are you sure you want me to follow you? Are you sure I'm the guy that you want? And repeatedly, over and over again, God says, yes, I have chosen you. And so now we find ourselves in this scene where God, in this wonderful narrative, we see that he actually visits, he draws near to Abraham and Sarah once again. So let's consider what we see, starting in verse 1. We're told that they're back at their kind of home base, back at the tent by the oaks of Mamre. And, he's, and the Lord appeared to him, he's talking about Abraham, in the heat of the day. This is probably nap time. right? Where They often would take breaks, right? have kind of siestas in the heat of the day. Where all of a sudden, God appears at the front of the tent. And what do we see Abraham do? In verse 2, it says, He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, what did he do? He ran from, ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. I think Abraham ostensibly knew in this moment the significance of these three individuals that stood before him. Because in the world, older men did not run. It would have been very uncharacteristic to have this. But yet we are told that Abraham ran. And not only ran, but he bowed himself to these men. Now I believe that if, if you were to pay close attention to the context of the, the rest of the following verses, you will see that these were not just three ordinary men. Rather, this was God accompanied by two angels. And let me, let me show you this. If you look down at verses 13, or verses 10, verse 13, and verse 14, you'll see that when one of these men speaks, Moses, the author, records that the Lord said. And you'll notice that it's capitalized L-O-R-D. In Hebrew, written Hebrew, that's Adonai. That's the proper name of God himself. So we see that this one of these individuals is God himself speaking to Abraham. And then if you jump over to the beginning of chapter 19, you'll notice that the other two were two angels. Two angels. So Abraham is in the presence of God himself. God has drawn near to him. Now, I think there's details in this account theological, that have theological significance that I don't want to pass over too quickly. But I do want to highlight the, kind of the story of what we are actually reading. So the three show up, and what does Abraham do? He not only runs and bows to them, but he goes into hospitality mode, doesn't he? 
He, he welcomes them. He tells them to hang out by the tree, right? To wash their feet. That he's going to prepare a, a little morsel of bread for them, a little snack before they move on, right? And, and he, he did so kind of frantically, right? He's, he's moving around. He's trying to get things ready. He's delighted that these three are in his presence. I compare it to if you've ever hosted a small group of any sort, it's kind of like the half hour before people show up. Right? Where you are frantically trying to get everything ready. Right? Get all the food ready because you want when people walk in to just be able to rest and to be able to partake in the task at hand. And so Abraham runs around, right? He even runs into the tent and tells Sarah, make cakes, right? Grab three, thousand, three seeds of flour, make cakes. And then he runs out and kills his best calf. And tells him to, uh, this young man to prepare it. And even though Abraham told right, God that he was going to prepare a little morsel of bread, what is Abraham really doing? He's preparing a feast, isn't he? A feast. And God welcomes this feast. And in verse 8, it says that Abraham served this wonderful meal to them as Abraham stood and watched like a good host would do. But don't miss... The, the theological theme that has now been presented to us. Because here in Genesis, I think we're beginning to see a pattern of the character and nature of God. And what is that? That God delights to eat with his people. Because throughout the history of the world, right, then as in today, right, sharing a meal with somebody has always been a, a social way to say that I am in relationship with you. And so God is, is demonstrating this pattern. And if you recall, what was one of the greatest accusations against Jesus during his earthly ministry? Is that he ate with who? Sinners. Right? The religious people couldn't believe it. That somebody, this rabbi who was claiming to be God, would eat with people who were sinners in the lost of that day. They couldn't believe it. Because what was that signaling? That he was in relationship with them. That he was welcoming them to be a part of himself. In Genesis 18, now God is demonstrating that, right? He is, he is introducing this pattern of God eating with his people that will carry on throughout all of Scripture. Demonstrating that God communes with his people through food. A communion with God, just like being, being chosen by him, is not based off of what you have done or what you will do, but based off of who he is and what he has done and will do. It's a wonderful thing to see how God interacts with people like you and I. Those that don't have anything to offer. But yet God invites us to his table. Now, if you are not a Christian this morning, maybe you're not quite sure where you're at, I want to speak to you really briefly. Because this really does follow the whole unfolding of Scripture, the whole story of God. Because the story of the Bible tells us that God not only knows right, your, your deeds and your actions, 
But he also knows what you think. Everything that goes on in your head, everything that has been done, whether anybody else witnessed it or not, God knows it all. Now, in a lot of ways, we should go, "Uh uh-oh, on that. If God knows everything about me, then he knows everything about me. But yet, what the story of the Bible is, right, why the gospel is good news, is because even though God knows all of those things about you, he still draws near to sinners. He still says, I know That's the whole reason why I came. Because you know, if you're being honest with yourself, that you have failed to live as me being the only God in this world. But what do you do then? Because there's no way that you can make up for it by just doing a bunch of good things. Because God knows your heart. So if you're just trying to do good deeds and he knows that you're coming from a selfish heart then it's not a good deed. But yet, this table that we are beginning to see is that even when we're dead in our sins, guilty of all those things, God invites us to the table because what he will do through his life, death, and resurrection. That he invites sinners to be in relationship with him because he knows that he is going to pay for those sins on the cross. God's not going to forget about him. God's not going to say it doesn't matter. It's actually going to cost Jesus his life. But he does so because, well, the Bible says because he loves us. And he wants to make a way for you and I to be able to be able to sit and eat with him again. And so if you're, if you're new to church, not quite sure where you're at, that's... That's what I want you to hear. That's what I want you to know about us. That's what I want you to know about Christianity. That's not this moral philosophy to adhere to, but it's a person to adhere to. Right? That's what we're trying to do as a church, is we're just trying to be a group of people that clings to Christ, and we cling to Christ together because we're all in need of Him. But going back to Genesis 18, I want to highlight a, a few more details that I think both through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but maybe Moses intentionally, highlights some of the things that happen in this meal that will then play out later on throughout the Bible. Because if you look down at verse 6, notice the details that Moses records. When he tells Sarah to go make cakes, which basically would have been flatbread, think of like flatbread, He tells her to get three C's of fine flour to do it. Now, if we were to convert a C measurement into our modern kind of baking measurements, three C's would have equated about 93 cups of flour. Okay, it's a lot of flour. Now, to be quite honest, I don't have any baking knowledge. I've had baking attempts, but not knowledge. I, I try to watch MasterChef and get inspired. It doesn't go well. <laughs> but despite my limited knowledge of baking, 93 cups of flour probably makes a lot of flatbread. But who are, how many guests are there? There's three. There's three. 
So why is Abraham and Sarah making such a feast right now for three? Well, I believe that this is pointing to something greater than just this moment. That this great feast in which Abraham and Sarah are presenting to God is pointing us forward that there will be a great feast with God in the days to come. In that feast, if we were to go all the way to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we are told that there will be a great feast in the new heavens and new earth. It is referred to as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a banquet that consummates the kingdom of God. And that banquet will be attended by all of God's redeemed people, right? All of those who have trusted and placed their faith in him. All of the church, his bride, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So one day there is going to be this giant feast, right? This meal, this communion with God. Where we will be able to no longer live under the consequences of a time where God's people ate without him. Referring back to the garden. Where we ate, where God says, do not eat. And God has, been re, has this plan of redemption flowing through the words of Scripture, highlighting that what you fail to do, I will complete, and I'm going to make it much more. So all this food is pointing to that great feast that is to come. And we get that snapshot of how God draws near to us. But now if you were to look down at your Bible, look at verse 9. I think where we begin to see the intentional purpose of this visit. Because God asked Abraham, where is your wife? Where is your wife? Remember, this is God who is speaking. It's not as if he doesn't know. He knows where Sarah is. But he's highlighting that he has come to deliver something specifically for her this time. And what is that? It's the promise of a son. A promise that has been given over and over again. But this time, this time there's actually even more clarity to it, isn't there? It says, this time next year, Sarah, you will have a son. All these years of waiting all these years of unknowing, like, did I get it wrong? Am I, is it supposed to come through somebody else? Here we have God speak very clearly that the appointed time is coming. And what's Sarah's response? Right? I would have thought that she would have been overflowed with joy here. Finally knowing when this was going to happen. But what does she do? She laughs. Right? She doesn't respond and praise, but with doubt. Now, I don't believe this was an audible laugh. Um, if you look at the text, it says that she laughed to herself. And then we even see what I believe is kind of the, the very thoughts in, in her head go forth of why she is doubting God. Because what does she say, in a sense? She says, there's no way I can have kids. Doesn't God know how old I am? How advanced in years I am? And even points out that basically her child-rearing cycles have come and gone. God, don't you know biology? Don't you know how this works? 
Even if you look at verse 12, it says that like, maybe this is pointing to like me and Abraham aren't even intimate anymore, God. But what does God do? Well, one, he knows. He knows everything in which Sarah's thinking. He knows all of what's going inside her heart, which he knows for all of us, right? There's nothing that you hide from him. There's nothing that is going on in us that God says, I had no idea you were thinking that. This doesn't happen with him. Nothing is hidden from him. And, and we see this response where God asks Abraham, why did she laugh and give reason of doubt? And then if we continue on in verse 15, uh, Sarah denies it, doesn't she? She's like, I didn't laugh. Because maybe she's referring to She didn't audibly laugh. But she's like, no, no. God says, I know you did. Because I know what's going on inside your heart and mind and soul. And we even see that she was afraid. She was afraid. Afraid to trust that God was not just mighty, but good. But what I'd like to do is focus our attention back to verse 14. As you can see where the title of today's sermon comes from. Where God responds after asking Sarah why she laughed. Saying, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now this is a rhetorical question, isn't it? But it's a reminder, it's an important one. Because God is reminding Abraham, reminding Sarah who is listening in, reminding us through his word of exactly who we are talking about. God Almighty, the creator of all the heavens and all of the earth. And if God is who he says he is, then there is nothing too hard for him. There's nothing too hard for him. You know, there's another way you can even translate this text where it is right that you could say, is there anything too wonderful for him to do? Is there anything too wonderful for him to do? And God is bringing this up because we have, I think, Sarah and Abraham and us, we have this tendency to put our limitations onto him, onto God, and say, God is like us. I don't know how this is going to work out, so therefore God doesn't know how this is going to work out. I can't change this, therefore God cannot change this. And we tend to put ourselves in the same posture or same position as God himself. Well, that's just not true. It's not true, church. He is not like us. And thanks be to God for that. He is very different than us. He is God and we are not. You know, Jesus would have to teach the same lesson in the Gospels. There's this account where there's this dad and, and his young boy is, has been demon-possessed. This young boy has been throwing, based off of this, this demon possession, this young boy has been, been thrown into fires or into water. And this dad seeks out Jesus during his earthly ministry. And he comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, if you can heal my son, will you do it? And if you remember, what does Jesus respond? If you can. If I can heal him. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that all things are possible for one who believes? Because where is the belief in? Himself. 
And so once again, church, I think we are confronted with the reality of God's sovereignty in this world. Are you looking at all the ways that you desire things to happen through the mechanisms of this world? Are you looking to accomplish all the things which you desire to accomplish and saying, okay, I have to do this, I have to do this, and if this doesn't happen, then that won't happen? Or are you looking at it through the eyes of the one who can do all things? Because one will lead you to despair. And one will lead you to a greater dependency on him. On him. In fact, let me, let me show you a quote from a guy named Ligon Duncan. He's a trusted theologian. And I found this very helpful. Where he says, Until we are absolutely trusting that God is in control of everything, it makes no sense for us to trust him in him completely. But when we understand that there is nothing too difficult for the Lord, then we have had seeds of the basis of faith. Now, I believe over in the book of Hebrews, this moment in Genesis was pretty critical in the life of Sarah. Because what we learn about Sarah in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.11, and I think I have a slide for this, Taylor, Let me show you this. It says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. You see what happened? In Genesis 18, we're seeing all of the excuses in which Sarah is bringing to God. I'm old. All of these things are happening. But yet we see here, Because ultimately, we'll see the birth of Isaac. We'll see the birth of this this promised son in the coming chapters. But we see here that her faith had changed, didn't it? Now, did she have more faith? Or did she have some kind of, uh, just a stronger faith than she once did? I don't think so. What we see is that Sarah moved her faith from circumstances to a person. To a person. That her faith was grounded not in her, but him. So church, hear me clearly on this then. There will be hard seasons and circumstances in your life. We live in a broken world. We live in a world that is wrecked by sin, our own and others. I know there's many of you who are experiencing that right now. But is there anything too hard for the Lord? Now, that doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you'll be healed from cancer. It doesn't mean that every relationship that you want to be restored will be restored in the way you want it to. But what it does mean is that there will never be a day where God says, I wish I could have helped you in that. But it was too great for me. That day never comes because there is nothing too hard for him. And so wherever God leads you, whatever path that you have to go down, know that it is the right and perfect path that God in his mightiness and his goodness has declared for you to walk down. And as we've seen, it's not a walk down in isolation. 
It's walking down that God is walking with you. God draws near, right? He is the good shepherd of Psalm 23 who walks through the valleys of the shadow of death. And so I want you guys to keep praying. All of us, keep praying, keep trusting, keep asking God for things that seem impossible to you because with him, nothing is impossible. Now in the coming verses, ones that we didn't read today, finishing off verse, or chapter 18, going into chapter 19, which I hope to do next week, where we see God move powerfully according to his, his, his justice. I don't want us to forget that God draws near to those who doubt. God draws near to those who need him. He draws near. And God has not only come to Sarah and Abraham, but he's also come to all of us, hasn't he? He's come to us through the person and work of Jesus. That when he came into the world, what was he demonstrating? Right When God himself took on humanity, became one of us, lived a life we couldn't live, but yet died the death we deserved, rose from the grave, what was that signaling? What was that pointing to? Well, it was the ultimate declaration that there was nothing too hard for him. Because the thing that we needed most, the redemption and the salvation of our own souls, he accomplished. He demonstrated that in his life. And so we can trust him. Because when Jesus came, too, he wasn't just reminding us of the promises of God. He was fulfilling them, wasn't he? Fulfilling the very things in which we needed All the ways that we needed to be restored. All the ways that we needed to be reminded that God is in control of all things. It's why he came. It was the ultimate declaration of that. And we wait now for his coming again. Because God is not finished. Even though he accomplished those things that were our greatest need and that's the salvation of our souls. We know that there are still things that we want to be free of. Even though we have been freed from the, the legal status of our sin, as, as Glenn mentioned earlier, we have been justified in the sight of God because of Jesus, that his work on the cross was the atonement of our sins, but yet his life was then, was then given to us. But what we are still waiting on is even though we don't want to be in the presence of sin anymore, We've been freed from the condemnation of sin and we await to be freed from the presence of sin. And that is still coming. But if God is who he says he is, he does not start things and not bring them to completion. Over and over again, we see this. Why? Because we forget. But there is nothing too hard for him. So until that day that he comes back, What are we going to do? We're going to keep clinging to him and his promises. Keep practicing, right? Preparing for that marriage supper of the Lamb. And how do we do that? When we partake of the Lord's Supper as a church. Where we are reminding ourselves that what we eat here is remembrance of who God is. But it's also pointing forward to that great feast that is to come. And what a day that will be. 
But for now, let's trust him. Let's trust him right where we are at because there is nothing too hard for him. All right, church. I'm done. Yep. Let me pray. And then we will respond. Well, Father, I want to thank you for your word, for all the promises that we have been seeing in Genesis, but we are reminded again here in Genesis 18 that you are a God who draws near to your people so that we could draw near to you because you're good and we can trust you in all things, even those things that don't seem to make sense to us. But God, I thank you that you are not like us. That you don't, you don't have limits of knowledge like I do. That you don't have limits of power like I do. You don't have limits of everything which I have limits of. You do not. So Lord, thank you. I pray that you would allow all of us to turn to you, to trust you. For those who have never trusted you, God, I pray that that you would give them just hearts of repentance to turn from their sin and their lack of trust in you and to turn to you as Lord and Savior right now. God, what a gift it is to be known by you. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able to, let me invite you to stand one more time. We are going to respond with one more song, and then we are going to recite the Lord's Prayer together.